Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, thank you, fellas. That was great, as always. Let's go back to Proverbs chapter 11. And uh, we have been moving through the book of Proverbs. I've uh, been in chapter 11 for a little while and uh, uh, made the breakout a couple of weeks ago out of the first uh, section on balance. And now we've been looking at very practical principles that uh, the book of Proverbs is so uh, eloquently laid out as you study it out. And last week, you'll remember, we looked at uh, verses 4 through 9, and I showed you five very practical principles for everyday living, principles that when all put together, uh, all of them through the Bible, they form a structure of life that really makes life a lot less complicated uh, than we like to make it. You know, there's a great truth about God that I think has been lost today that is a truth that everybody needs to uh, try to remember, and that is that God always makes things so simple. Uh, it's man that complicates everything that God does in, in every way. You remember back in Genesis that when God started it all, his plan was a garden. And there's, and a, and a, there's nothing um, more simplistic than a, a garden, a farm, and just uh, living off the land, and that was God's plan. But when man messed it up and uh, he wanted to complicate it, then he goes and builds a city. And, of course, you know that first city was built by a murderer in the Bible. You take salvation. Can it get any simpler than what God did? God did all the work. Uh, all we have to do is to believe what the Lord said, accept it into our hearts, and the Bible says, thou shalt be saved. But when man gets his hands on it, it has to become a religion, see? It has to become a baptism. It has to become some good work. It has to become only through my church, uh, through church membership, or, uh, and it gets so complicated. When God gave man the Bible, he did the same thing. He made it so simple. The Bible's written in fourth grade English. I mean, God wrote a book that any dirt farmer in Kansas that never got past the sixth grade could read and figure out. And, of course, the, the Bible's built around stories. The Bible's built around key words that you learn. And, but when man got his hands on it, then, then it got real complicated, didn't it? Now it's become Bible college. Now it's become seminary. Now it becomes Greek and Hebrew lexicons. Now it becomes all of the things that God gave you the easiest book in the world and man tries to make it complicated. And you know, when you look at life, it's the same thing. Life is so basic and so simple as long as man follows what God says. Solomon said over there in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, there's 12 chapters in the book of Ecclesiastes. And the last chapter that he writes is really a conclusion of the whole book that he has laid out for us. And you know, if you know anything about the book of Ecclesiastes, what he has done in the book of Ecclesiastes is went through all the complicated ologies of man, all the philosophies that man comes up with. As the book of Proverbs says, there's many devices in a man's heart, and these are the devices that you see in the book of Ecclesiastes. And Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, he waged through every one of them, some 30 or 40 of them, he lays out the, all the, uh, the end result of him is all worthless and goes through all of those. And when he comes, talks about at the end of his book, when he talks about life and life on planet earth, he says this. He says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. And he simply says, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That's all life is. Life in its most simplistic form is just simply following what God told us to do. John 14, 22 says, if a man love me, he'll keep my words. And uh, you'll remember last week I gave you five uh, great principles that you'll want to remember. We talked about that the riches profit not in a day of wrath. We talked about how that the Holy Spirit leads and guides your steps. Steps of a good man are ordered from the Lord. We talk about the foolish expectations of the unsaved world, but also worldly Christians who who, uh, you know, carry, uh, uh, come crashing down and all their unrealistic expectations at death and no hope. We talked about the righteous getting delivered out of his trouble and talked about being delivered from the mouth of the wicked, whether it be wicked Christians or whether it be wicked, unsaved people, the hypocrites, as the Bible calls them. And it's some great practical material, but it's all built around one book in the Bible, and we talked about this last week, the book of Proverbs, because the book of Proverbs shows you two fundamental things about life, the negative and the positive. There's going to be negative and there's going to be positive in your life. And the way that you get around them is simply follow what the Word of God says. Now today, 
Uh, I want to look at four more very basic concepts that we find about life. And uh, the book of Proverbs will cover it all. And by the time we get done with it, you'll see. Uh, you remember that the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs were really an introduction. The first nine chapters or so told us how to get wisdom. It told us how valuable knowledge was and told us how that understanding was the thing that we really wanted to try to get in our life. And uh, we, got, we saw in the first nine chapters or so how that discretion and discernment was absolutely vital. All of these things come from us getting the Bible and just following the Bible. Now, we are actually seeing the principles in action as we come through the book of Proverbs. We're taking one at a time. I'm laying them out. I'm taking them and showing you how they work in your life in a negative and a positive way. I'm showing you how to deal with the positive, deal with the negative, because as I said last week, negative and positive is what makes up life. Now let's read uh, chapter 11, verses 11 through 14, and, and here's what he says. By the blessings of the upright, the city is exalted, but it is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. Now you see there's a negative and a positive. This is positive and a negative. This is what we find here. He that is void of wisdom despises his neighbor but a man of understanding holdeth his peace. A talebearer revealeth secrets, but he that is a faithful spirit concealeth the matter. Where no counsel is, the people fall, but in a multitude of counselors there is safety. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus, and we do love you today. We thank you for everything that you've given us in our church. We thank you for the Bible that we stand on and how that, Lord, we simply believe it, we follow it, we don't add anything to our curriculum. Uh, the Bible is all we have. We go to it for all the answers in life, all of the negative things and all the positive things, and we just love you for giving us a book. And these are good people here today. Some of them we know have traveled a long way to come here today, and I'm so appreciative of that. But, Lord, let them go home today with a blessing. May something that is said uh, encourage them, <clears throat> help them make the long trip home uh, worth the trip here. And, Lord, let them know that I'm always here for them to help them in a personal way, any way that I can. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, we'll begin to look at these one at a time, just like uh, we did last week. And uh, we'll begin to uh, come down through. Verse 10 says, When it goeth well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there is shouting. Now, Doctrinally, if you don't have this in your Bible, you'll want to get this. Doctrinally, uh, what you have here is the, is the uh, second coming of Christ. The city here is Jerusalem. And uh, the wicked that perish, of course, is the Antichrist. And that's, how you, that's what the verse is saying in a doctrinal way. But uh, the verse for us is a very good practical side to it that I want you to see today. And one that you will see a lot if you uh, deal with people or you're looking around and, and working with situations, you'll see this all the time. You know, I found that most Christians today, and really Christianity today, uh, but both Christians are what I call situational Christians. They're just like the verse I just read. Their, their happiness is always built on the situation that they're in. When it goeth well, they're very happy. When it doesn't go well, they're not very happy. And as long as it's a good scenario and it works to their advantage, they're very happy and they rejoice. As long as they get what they want and, uh, and, and nobody ever challenges them on it, uh, there is no issue. You know, you see a lot of kids like this with parents. Um, I've seen kids that parents had that they were really good kids till you had to discipline them. I mean, they were respectful, everything right up to the point that they did something wrong or you had to correct them or you had to deal with them on an issue, then you see that, that they're, they're, not, uh, they're not happy about everything in life and you see where you begin to have some problems. You know, uh, uh, and life is definitely based on, uh, these people's lives are definitely based on the positive and never the negative. Their comfort zone is very narrow and they don't do well when it gets threatened. In most cases, uh, their life revolves around them. And so they want their comfort zone around them. And it, it, it goes to without saying that the older a person gets, the longer a person gets, the more they become that way. So anything that would threaten that, uh, there will be some issues. In churches, you know, I've seen them all my life. They're fine, you know. Uh, all the time they're great until you have to deal with them on an issue. 
and then you'll see that there's no rejoicing or shouting anymore. They're the kind of people that are situational Christians. Their whole joy of life, just like that city, their whole joy and happiness is based on everything going well. Uh, people like this or the infamous church hoppers that we, we hear so much about. They bounce from church to church. They start with one church. They go there for three or four months or maybe a year. Everything is great. Oh, it's a great church. We love it. Then something rattles their windows and off you go to another church. At some point, you obviously are going to run out of churches. <laughs> and then when you get to that point, and I've seen this, you just stay home. You either don't go to church or if you're somebody, you start to say, well, I'll just have church in my home. You just can't find a church that is worthy of your greatness. So they, they struggle through all of those things because it's always built on them and their situations. Situational Christian. Now let me begin this by saying something here. My style of ministry has never, nor will it ever be, I'm afraid, will ever cater to that kind of situational lifestyle. My style of ministry is very foreign uh, from most styles, uh, and I want it to be that way. I don't fit the mode of what pastors should be. Many times you've introduced me to your pastor, and people had to take a double look. They, they have a hard time, and, I, and I, I don't want to look like, you know, you can spot a Baptist preacher if there's a crowd of 10,000 people at Disney World, he'll be the one with a three-piece suit on. You can pick him out pretty clear, you know. His wife will have the long dress. And it'll be, it's very easy to see, you know. And, our, and our, our, our church doesn't fit the mold of most churches, and I don't want it to, Baptist churches. You know, most, uh, um, I mean, today in Christianity, the pastor uh, in a cardigan sweater sits on a stool and he teaches the Bible. That's not my style. Now, we do have two stools here, but we don't use them to sit on to teach the Bible, okay? It's a thing where that just doesn't work for me, anyhow. Years ago, years ago, about 19, oh, I don't even know if it was in the 60s, uh, probably the 60s. I forget exactly when it was. I remember reading a, 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 a couple of books on it. It was around the end of the Cold War. It became clear that America's military had to change its thinking. There would be no more World War I's or World War II's. And most people who don't understand anything about history, they just hear World War I and World War II. There was a vast difference between World War I and World War II. In World War I, you measured success by yards. It was a static warfare, trench warfare. You had your trench here and a German trench maybe 100 yards away from you. And you never moved for two or three years. That was static, and there was no advancement. Oh, you went a little bit, maybe you took that trench, but then there was another one. But in World War II, it was totally different. In World War II, it was measured in miles. When Patton's Third Army broke out of Bastogne and got the 101st out, they charged into Germany, and they were going 60, 70 miles a day, liberating town after town after town. Those days of warfare are gone, and our military back around the 60s when we got into, into, into Vietnam, they knew that uh, there would be no more uh, warfare like that. Vietnam taught us that wars from this point on were going to be fragmented all over the world, hot spots, much like you see today. In the Middle East, you're seeing a great example of it. We're at war, even though we don't want to admit it at war. And you know why it's hard for some people to understand why we are at war in the Middle East with, with radical Muslims who want to kill all the Western Christianity and are doing it every day over there? Because they don't wear uniforms. In World War II, you had the 12th Panzer Division. You had, the, uh, you know, the crack uh, 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 the 335th Infantry Division. They don't have divisions over there. They don't have armies like they used to have. Nobody wears a uniform. You can't tell the good guys from the bad guys. If there's any time to buy bumper stickers and pass them out that says, kill them all, let God sort them out, it would be the day and age we live in. It's very confusing in war today. And it's a situation where you don't know who the bad guys are. There's no armies. There's no companies. There's no battalions. There's no divisions. It's, it's everybody is, is moving fluidly all through the region over there. And it was in light of things like that that they saw coming out of Vietnam that the Army changed its whole philosophy and they, they, took, and they took the famed 82nd Airborne Division, which is a very famous uh, airborne group, 
and they added to that four ranger companies, and they developed what came to be known as the Rapid Deployment Brigade, about a 1,000 guys. It was a highly mobile, rapid response combat team. It was a 1,000 guys that they could take in less than 24 hours, drop any place on this planet that they could solve and get into any conflict, deal with it. They were experts in what they did with pinpoint precision. They were a surgical strike team, and they absolutely could do, in 24 hours, be anywhere where a situation was boiling up because they knew that there'd never be any more wars like the wars that we fought. I remember reading that years ago, and I thought to myself, you know what? I always thought that was the right way to build a church. Forming a group of people into a team that could be dropped by God in any scenario, in any situation to get the job done wherever, whether it be in Wichita, whether it be in Monmouth, Illinois, whether it be in, in uh, 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 Lincoln, Nebraska, whether, no matter where it would be, anywhere around the world. Now, it goes without saying that you can't do that with ordinary Christians, Christians who are situational uh, in their lifestyle. I had to laugh this last week, and I don't know if you caught it or not, but the prime minister of Israel spoke before Congress, uh, Netanyahu, and uh, he came over here, and he spoke to me. I thought it was probably the single greatest speech I'd heard probably in the last 20 years of my life. It was absolutely incredible. But I, the response to it was exactly what I expected. The Democrats, of course, don't, didn't like him coming over here. It, they felt like he was going to infringe on what the president was doing with, with the, uh, our, the, uh, the people in the Middle East uh, uh, to, to, to get them to uh, not to get a nuclear weapon. And so they all downplayed it. And the Democrats, many of them uh, boycotted it. And I watched the response when it came back. And I thought to myself, that is absolutely so typical of where we're at today. One, a couple, a whole group of Democrats were standing there and they were giving a response and they talked about it being very theatric. Should have got an Academy Award. They talked about that he was demeaning in his speech. And one of them said, who is he to come to this country to lecture us on terrorism? Who is he? Let me tell you who he is. For the last 30 years of his life, before he got into public service, he was head of Israelis' special forces group that ran more counterinsurgencies into the Middle East than any other group. Back in 1976, or maybe it was 78, I can't remember exactly when it was, when they had the great, uh, if you remember, down in Uganda, 76 it was, Adi Amin, some Muslim radicals had hijacked a French jet that had a lot of, had a lot of uh, uh, Jewish people on it. Flew it into Uganda in Africa and held them prisoner at the airport. And they wanted, they wanted members of the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Army, to be set free or they were going to kill all the Jews, which was about 150 if I remember right. They let all the other people go, but they held the Jews hostage. And they wanted them to, to, to turn over all these PLO people and they were going to let these people go. Israel does not negotiate with terrorists. You know what they did? They put together a surgical strike team that flew out of Israel in the middle of the night, flew 2,500 miles, never refueled with anybody, never told anybody, in the dead of night, they landed in the Uganda airport in the dark night, taxied way off to the side. They had a car in there that, and a guy dressed like Audium in, and the surgical team came out and took, that, took those guys out, got every one of the hostages. I think they lost four, and they got them on the plane. They took them out before anybody even knew what happened. Benjamin Knott, whose brother, was the, was the key commander that was killed on that raid, the only casualty they had. That man has fought terrorists for 40 years of his life. He was a member of the Special Forces Commando team that at least 100 raids into those places. He's fought in four of the wars, of the six wars that they've had. He's like the Joshua of the day in Israel. 
Who is he to lecture you who sits in an air-conditioned office who never got outside her office one time and served a day in the military? I'll tell you who he is. He's somebody you ought to listen to. He's been where it's at and he knows what it takes. But situational politics are like situational Christians. It takes men and women who want to be the best in Christianity now. It takes men and women who want to be the best to do the work to get to be the best. It takes highly motivated individuals. Most pastors, they want large attendances in their churches. I understand that. That's always been true. They want a church of 1,000 or 2,000. Uh, they want to have some great monument built to themselves that they can stand around and say, look what we're doing. Well, it's obvious that God isn't doing it, so you are doing it. But in my thinking, in my own style of ministry, I'll take, I'll take quality over quantity any time. Now, just like the whole U.S. military can't get a specialized job done, big churches can't get it done either. You know, you take our church, situational Christians. You take our church. I never planned to run 600 or 1,000 people. That was never my goal, will never be my goal. Right now, if we get everybody together, we probably got about 250 people in our church. I think the Bible is very clear back in the Old Testament that the, the, uh, the Bible tells you that the effective range of a church, the maximum is about 400 people, very clearly. You get 1,000 people or 800 people, you know what you get? You get 200 people doing the job and 800 people going along for the ride. I'll take 200 to 300 people who are doing the job anytime. The smaller, the smaller number, the closer the relationship, the better hands-on training. Just like that special reaction force that could be anywhere in the world, I want to train God's people to be anywhere that God wants to drop you to get the job done, whether you're in a group or whether you're by yourself, but you have the self-confidence, the self-discipline, and the self-sacrifice to be able to get that job done. In miniature today, there's no, uh, there's no place in my mind for situational Christianity. We need to be trained hard. We need to live hard. We need to be able to do hard things. Now, back in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel chapter 23, one of my favorite stories, and I've always thought that this was the great key to building a church. And it's a chapter that deals with David's mighty men of valor. And it was very clear that you had the armies of Israel, but that you had a special group that were, that were getting the job done in a greater way than the whole army could. And I've always thought that that story is one of the greatest keys to building a church as far as a philosophy and a strategy. Now, I understand not everybody's going to make the cut. I'm always on the prowl. I'm always looking for every man or woman, young kid that comes into this church to check it out. While you're checking us out, I'm checking you out. Because I'm always on the prowl, I'm always looking for anybody who has one ounce of leadership ability. I'm always looking for anybody that has that extra edge that puts you into the elite category that you're not situational in your life, that you'll get trained, you'll get the Word of God, you'll get everything that you need. When the Navy SEALs, who are probably America's greatest uh, uh, reaction team uh, that we hear so much about with the famous SEAL Team 6 that got Bin Laden and all that, they go through a horrendous training period. And it's a tremendous thing called Bud's Week. And down there you'll find that they put them through the first week is absolutely horrendous. And they do that to try to get them to quit. If you'd go to any Bud training center down there and you'd look at that first week, by the middle of the week, uh, and certainly by the end of the week, you know what you'd find? When they have their formation along the line, they all wear helmet liners, and they're all painted with a number on it. That is their class number. You'd see those helmets all lined up there on the line, and you know what they do? When they can't take it anymore, when the timing gets too tough, when they realized that they wanted to be a SEAL, but they didn't have the inner courage to be able to be one. They didn't have the self-discipline or determination. The pain got too great. The challenge became too much. You know what they do? They all get into formation, and they give them a chance. They take that helmet off. They lay it in that long line of helmets, and they walk over to a big old bell, and they ring the bell. You know what that ringing the bell says? I quit. I don't have what it takes to be what I want to be. Now, boy, in Christianity over the years, there's a lot of God's people that ring the bell. 
and a line of helmet liners goes for miles. It takes somebody to special to be able to do that. It takes somebody, and you know, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how healthy you are. All that matters is the determination and the motivation and the attitude that you have. That's all that matters. That you're going to be everything that God wants you to be. That you're not going to be a normal Christian. You're not going to be a situational Christian. You're going to allow God to train you, make you, mold you into everything that God wants you to be so God can put you anywhere, at any time, in any place, and get the job done. You have to build a church from the inside out. I would much rather have two, three hundred, four hundred people who were do that. That three hundred and sixty of them were on fire for God, ready to go, could be go anywhere. You will get more done with that than all of the fluff. That's why I never put a sign out for this church. There's one out there, but you can't see it. I'm the guy that planted a tree in front of it, so you couldn't see it. I never put a sign out. All the people around here that went, a couple of them came to me. Be careful, the noise upstairs. A couple of them come to me a couple of weeks ago and said, Well, I'm really mad at Larry. And I said, When's that? Larry owns the place. He said, They won't let me put a sign up. And I think we ought to all get together and, and, and talk to Larry about putting a sign up. I said, Well, count me out. I don't want a sign. You know what happens when you get a sign? All the people driving up and down Florida Highway, they just got mad at the last church, the last pastor, are looking for a new church and a new pastor so they can get mad at. You know why you're here today? Do you know why you're here today? You got here because of no sign. You got here because nobody knocked on your door. You got here today because God brought you here today. One way or the other. He must think you got something special. He wouldn't have brought you here. Now, I realize that God looks inside all of us and he sees what's special. That's never the issue. The issue is, can you look inside yourself and see what's special? Situational Christianity. They're like that verse. As long as everything goes great, I'm fine the moment their world gets shaken. It never ceases to amaze me. It just never does. It never ceases to amaze me uh, how God's people uh, are all relaxed to their circumstances. They come to the place where I, I believe that when you take a people and you train them from the inside out and you teach them everything that they need to know, You teach them to be flexible. You teach them to be adaptable. You teach them to be compatible. You teach them to be durable. You teach them to be flexible. There'll be time in ministry where you get bent, but you don't get broken. You learn to adapt. You have to adjust to every situation. You have to realize that the situation isn't going to change for you. You have to change for the situation. Compatible. Be able to work with others, whether they're 60, they're 50, they're 40, or they're 20. The idea is ministering together. Everybody has something that is special, durable, getting beat up, coming back for more, never quitting. No way I'm ringing the bell. No way my helmet liner is going up there. I'll take it all they can. When I can't take any more, I'll find the strength to take some more. That's what Christians need today. Every Christian cross-trained to work together or work alone to do the job, not based on the situations of life, but based on self-sacrifice, self-denial. And today, not many people can do that. I want you to know this. When you commit to work with me in this ministry, I'll put you in every bad situation I can find. I'll let you get out there in circumstances and situations, and I'll let you, I'll always keep my eye on you, and I won't let you fall, but I'll let you dangle for a while. I want to see what you're made of. I want to see how you respond. I want to see how you do what you need to do. I want to see how you take what I've been teaching you and learning and do something with it. And I don't care if your situations are stupid stuff that you cause yourself or stuff that you're not responsible for. I want to see how you deal with it because it determines whether you ring the bell or your helmet goes along the line. Whiners and wannabes need not apply. Everything we do, every level of training is nothing more getting us ready for the next challenge that God will give us. And at the end of the day, everybody online 
and that 250 or 300 or whatever it may be will put 2,000 to shame any day of the week. Now, a lot of people, when I talk like that, they say, oh, there he goes again. Yeah, here I go again. But you know, the principles found in David's Mighty Men of Valor, you go back and study it because those guys were special, because those guys applied themselves, because those guys were cut above the rest. One guy killed 800 men. You think he was just blowing smoke like you think I am doing? I'd put some of you up against the very best in this country when it comes to the Word of God. Because you're, you, I look at back there in Daniel chapter 1, when Daniel was taken into captivity, Nebuchadnezzar wanted to make him like all the other people in the world in the kingdom, and he wanted to feed him a diet. And he said, hey, you know what? Just let us keep staying in the book. Just let us keep eating what we eat and doing what we do with God. And at the end of a period of time, put our people up against your people. And he did. Worst decision he ever made in his life. And at the end of the day, when they put the test between the Hebrew children and Babylon people, they were 10 times better. You know why? That's what the Word of God will do for you. That's what self-discipline will do for you. It'll make you better. It'll make you stronger. It'll give you what's missing today in Christianity, and that is the courage to stand and hold the line in these last days. Most of you don't know. I, 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 I always, all my life, you know, I've, I've always enjoyed reading stories of great men in great military battles and watched and looked between the lines of what got them through when it didn't get somebody else through. And there's a story of a guy by the name of Colonel uh, Pat Flint. They called him Patty Flint. And uh, he was killed uh, six weeks after uh, the Normandy invasion. And he was 56 years old when he was killed, and he's a colonel of the 39th Infantry Division Regiment. And he was leading on a t- he was riding point on a tank at 56 years old. And when he was riding point in that tank, he was leading his whole company, uh, his own regiment, up against a, a hedge grove of Germans. And he was, he was in the front leading them at 56 years old. When everybody else was in the rear with the gear, he was out in front. And a sniper killed him on that day. He was an incredible guy. At one point in his life, when he took over the 39th Infantry Division, on his own helmet one day, he had painted and stenciled a little design. It was A-A-A with a long bar and then a zero. He showed up at that parade that morning and all of his subordinates looked at him and everybody looked at him on both sides of his helmet. A-A-A dash zero. One of them said, Colonel, what does that mean on your helmet today? And he says, it's going to be the new motto of our division. It stands for anything, anytime, anywhere, bar nothing. Now, if you think I made that up, I'm prone to making things up. (laughs) I got this from a guy by the name of Boffman. He's dead now. He was in the 39th Infantry Division. You see, this is the original net. Hadn't been touched in 65 years. Underneath that net, you know what you see? You see the stencil. A-A-A bar zero. That was the motto. That ought to be the motto of every Christian. That ought to be the model of this church. That ought to be what we stand for. That when we train ourselves, when we get ourselves to the place where we're ready to do something, that it's for God, anything, anytime, anywhere, bar nothing. Some of God's people will be fine, but when issues come up, they get mad about it. You know, a great example of that in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel? Cain is a great picture of a situational Christian. In verse, chapter 4, verse 5, uh, they bring their offerings to the Lord. He brings to the Lord. He's as happy as can be. Big old El Camino back truck, truck backs up with all of his fruits and vegetables on it. He lays them on there on the ground, and he says, Oh, what a great day. This is the day the Lord hath made. Thank you, God, for this great blessing. Here's my offering. God says, I can't take it. That's the wrong offering. That situation changed everything about him, didn't it? God looks at him and he says, why has thou countenance fallen? 
He said, you didn't accept my offering. He said, no problem. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt you didn't. You missed Sunday school that morning. They taught that lesson. I'll tell you what. You go get the right offering and bring it to me, and I'll accept it. No problem at all. But you know what happened in verse 8? He rejects God's offer. He gets angry over his situation. He kills his brother. And in verse 16, the Bible says he changes churches. He left the presence of the Lord to find a new church. And he goes down and starts a city and builds a church, the first Baptist church of Nod. And that's where he goes. Say, it's not in the Bible. It ought to be. Well, that's what happens with situational Christians. Now look at verse 11. By the blessings of the upright, the city is exalted, but is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. Great principle here. Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 18, that wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sitter destroyeth much good. Now this is the single reason right here uh, to build your church tight and lean and well-disciplined to the principles. It never ceases to amaze me, and I've seen this phenomena in every church I've ever been associated with, uh, no matter what. And many times I've went to preach, and I've seen it. I've held revivals for them, and I've seen it. I've been into Bible conferences with them, and I've seen it. I've seen it all my life. Uh, it's true uh, to the hundreds of time in my 44 years in the ministry. You can have the hottest game in town in your church. People coming and getting saved and God's blessing all over the place and God's DNA in everything. I've been part of some of the greatest revivals that I've, I've ever seen in my life. I've been part of some of the greatest Bible conferences where God came down and heaven filled your soul, brother, if you were there. And yet there will always be some people that will only see the negative in anything. Now, I understand there is negative in everything, but there's also positive in everything. I had a lady one time, and I had just finished preaching, and, 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 and somebody else was preaching, and people were getting saved, and it was a great time, and I was sitting back there wiping off my sweat and cooling down, and they were singing a song, you know, in uh, a break, and a lady came up to me, and she said, well, Brother Alexander, I enjoyed your message, and I said, well, thank you, ma'am. She said, but I want to tell you, there's a lot of things wrong with it. I wanted to say, ma'am, 40 people just got saved. God's Spirit came down and empowered this place like I have never seen in my life, and all you can focus on is what you don't like. That's situational, see? God's people like that. Mouth of the wicked. That's just the way it is. They'll never focus on the positive, only the negative. They couldn't tell you the name of the last 10 people that got saved in their church if you put a gun to their head. But boy, they pick up the dirt better than a vacuum cleaner. I always give tribute to those Christians. I love hardware stores. There's something about a hardware store. I love the tools. I love all the, I don't know anything about them. But I love being in a hardware store. You get all the bolts and all the nuts, everything lined up, everything you could ever want. But I always pay tribute to these people because every time I go to a hardware store, I always walk down the vacuum cleaner line and stop for a moment where they sell the dirt devils. <laughs> Have a moment of silence for them. Like the lady that traded her vacuum cleaner for a phone because she could pick up more dirt with a phone than she could the vacuum cleaner. <laughs> and the reason they're that way, bless their hearts, verse 11, is to overthrow what God's doing by the mouth of the wicked. Their life is so negative in every way, and they need negativity to survive. They're like a vampire who needs blood. They're like the walkers on the walking dead who have to have flesh to survive. And they have to live in the flesh to survive. Now, this is why you build your church on a strong elite status. You get 80 to 90% of your church on a wartime footing, ready to go on the edge, train, believe in the principles, using the principles, who are trained to endure a hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, like 7 Timothy 2.3 says, and uh, you'll want the majority of your church on fire and in tune. It limits the mouth of the wicked. Their circle of friends like them, the wicked, becomes very limited, and they get clobbered by the troops, spiritually, so to speak, uh, and they just, uh, they just don't have the supply to be able to survive. Now look at verse 11, the last part, the mouth of the wicked. 
We've seen this all through Proverbs eight or nine times now. We've been told that out of a righteous man's mouth will come righteous things. And out of a wicked man's mouth will come wicked things. It's always, it's always the righteous, the men and the women who do the work of God, who will hold the line and get the work done. And when you build a mentality of toughness and ministry based on the principles, based on self-discipline, self-sacrifice, putting yourself aside and helping others build that uh, elite team of men and women who will go anywhere, do anything, at any time, bar nothing, uh, you, get, you get done. And it's a foreign concept in most churches today, and certainly with most of God's people. And I'll just say this, if you listen to a CD on here someplace and you, you listen to this and you don't like what I just said, hey, just come on over. Try some of these people on for size. Try them on for size. They'll beat you bloody. Most of God's people today can't even grasp what I just said, but that's okay because in my life, in ministry, all I do is work my way through 100 people to find five or six that can make the cut. Everybody else can ring the bell. See, I'm absolutely sure today, even though the world we live in is in a mess, I'm absolutely certain of this one fact. I still believe, just as Jesus said back there with Elisha, when Israel was in apostasy, and Elisha thought he was the only one, do, Elijah thought he was the only one doing the job, God says, get a, get a life, man. I got 7,000 people out there who have not bowed their knee to Baal. And I believe in this effeminate, messed up, worthless Christianity today, there are still some men and women who want to be what God wants them to be. And I thank the Lord every day for God bringing them to me. I really do. And I just thank the Lord for it when he does it. Now look at verse 12. He that is void of understanding despises his neighbor, but a man of understanding holdeth his peace. Now this is one of the great principles that uh, you'll ever see uh, for yourself. He that is void of understanding despises his neighbors. You know, many times somebody's going through something, some deep trial, or they're faced with some tremendous, terrible issue in their life. And if we're honest, we've all had things in our lives that we're not proud of. Every one of us could look back and there's things that you would not want to be publicized. And we're glad that God forgave us and God forgives people like that, but we're never willing to give that same grace and that same forgiveness that God gave us to other people. And that's where we are. But now the verse says, a man void of understanding, he'll judge that person immediately. Especially if they don't like the person. But the man of understanding, he'll keep his mouth shut about it. He'll let the Lord reveal the truth of the matter. He'll let God deal with it. He'll talk to God about it, but he won't talk to everybody else about it. Proverbs 18, 13 is a great verse. It says, he that answereth the matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him. Basically, there's two sides to every story. Many times when people get into de- helping somebody or dealing with somebody, they just believe what that person tells them. I've never met a person in my life, maybe in the sake of, of, of three or four, that when they told me their side of the story, they gave it exactly that there wasn't a bias to help them out in some way, shape, or form. And I'm not saying they did it on purpose. I'm just saying that's survival of human nature. And if anything I've learned, I've learned they're smart enough that I don't just take what somebody tells me. If I got an issue where somebody says, well, he did this or she did this, it's easy to get enraged, especially if you're like this person but don't like that person. I don't, doesn't bother me. I love them both. I'll come to the place and I'll never take one side without sitting down with the other person and finding out both sides. That verse there, if I had the time this morning, I'd every, every one of you write it down on a piece of paper and pass it to the person to your right. Take it home with you. But you see, when we have an axe to grind against somebody, because we're not biblical, we love to get all the negative one-sided stuff put out by the wicked crowd who take it uh, to each other instead of taking it to God. And you remember that Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, the six things that God hates, the seventh is an abomination, is showing discord among the brethren. But I've watched these hypocrites for four decades. What they call sin in your life what they call a terrible sin in your life, 
and they judge you for, but when it comes into their own lives or their kids' lives, well, now it's a shortcoming. It's just a mistake. It's just a lack of judgment. It's just a weakness. You see, if you have wisdom and understanding, you'll know that many times there's many elements that make up a tragedy in somebody's life. And if they're saved, they're your brother and sister in Christ. And yet how many times I've seen God's people rejoice over a brother falling or a sister falling. They revel in their tragedy. It doesn't matter to them who's right or wrong or what the truth is. Lifting up the fallen is just not very popular today. Listen, the fall of a brother or a sister in Christ should make us weep instead of sneer. It should break our hearts instead of laughing, talking about it, making jokes about it, making sport about it, posting it on Facebook like we've got some great news. Are you like Christ, are we? These sanctimonious hypocrites. Well, let me tell you something. Jesus dealt with every sin and sinner on this planet, didn't he? He dealt with thieves. He dealt with drunkards. He dealt with harlots and fornicators. He dealt with crooks and he dealt with murderers. And most of all, he dealt with the most vile people you ever saw. That would be me and you. And he never did to us what God's people do to other God's people. Now, let me say this. Got to clarify something here. I understand that there are some really wicked things and some really wicked people out there. I get it. And sometimes by design. I've met some of God's people that I can only describe them as pure wickedness. And they're out to hurt you. I call it the Absalom syndrome. For those of you in, in, in people ministry, you know what I'm talking about. But that's a very small percentage in your life. You'll know that there will be people that you deal with, like Paul said, that you've got to mark them. You've got to set them outside the church. You've got to name them. You've got to protect your church from them. Sometimes you've got to protect your children from them. But the truth is, every man or woman in that Bible, at some point, was a terrible sinner. A lot of them did some terrible things after they got right with God. And yet, we're so quick to set all those things aside. Somebody says, oh, I love the Psalms. Really? Especially the ones that David wrote. Really? Would you trust him with your wife? Well, my apostle Paul is my greatest example of life. Yeah, well, he did disobeyed God and cut his ministry short and wound up in prison. Well, I love, I love the apostle Peter. Really? He denied the Lord three times. Well, I love Solomon. Well, he destroyed God's kingdom. Strange, isn't it? We'll look past all the things the people did in the Bible, and they really didn't do anything more than any of us have done. But we'll give them a pass because it was a long time ago. But we won't give each other a pass. And that's just the way God's people are today. Proverbs is a great book. Look at verse 13. A talebearer reveals secrets, but he that is in a faithful spirit concealeth the matter. If you got a secret, my advice to you is never give it, never, never confide it to anybody else, even if it's one person, because then it ain't a secret anymore. It's only a secret when you got it, or you and God got it. And these are some, these are some, there, there are some verses in the Bible that they just don't need any explanation. I can save a lot of time on this one because this one needs no commentary. This one, like so many verses in the Bible, is so clear. Uh, this nails everybody. You're either, you either do it or you don't do it. You're either one or the other. You're either a talebearer to reveal the secrets or you're a faithful that can feel with the matter. There isn't no in the middle here on this one. And here we are. The verse says a talebearer reveal the secrets. Now, a tale implies a falsehood. It's equivalent to a story. And even though it may have some truth to it, it will always have enough untruth in it to disqualify its carrier as being a truth bearer. And the man of a faithful spirit, he lets things pass that will not meet the six biblical requirements of speech when it comes in regard to another person. And the Bible gives you six clear principles to follow that you have your speech. Is it time? You're looking like it's time. We got a doctor four rows behind you. I have rubber gloves in my back pocket and water are boiling. We can do this. Doc, get ready. 
Where are you? We're good? All right. He just likes my preaching, doesn't he? Can't argue with that. I like it myself sometimes. Now, here's the acid test of who we really are. God's pimply will simply fall on one side or the other of this. Now, here's your conversation checklist. Before you say anything or you get involved in a conversation with somebody about something. Now, I understand that when you're working with somebody in counseling, I, we, I, I get all that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the dirt devils. You ever notice those little vacuum cleaners are red? Somebody knew their Bible. Now, here's the first thing. Here's the first thing you ask yourself. Is it true for certain? Do you have the truth? Or are you like Proverbs? Are you just, are you just uh, uh, in fool and folly because you haven't heard the whole matter? I've had, I've had people that I've dealt with before. Like I said, they tell me one side of their story, and I, I, I love them. I'm sympathetic to it. I would never answer somebody just based on that without talking to the other person. And, and I wouldn't say to that person, well, what does he say or what does she say? They're not going to tell you what the real truth is. So the first thing you've got to ask yourself before you engage about talking about somebody else, the first thing you've got to ask yourself is what I'm saying the truth. Now, here's the second thing. You say, well, it is true. All right, great. Here's the second thing. Then what business is it of yours? If you're not directly affected by it one way or the other, if it doesn't directly affect you, what business is it of yours? Why are you not following the biblical principles clearly laid out for you to handle this situation? I have people come to me all the time outside a counseling scenario, and they'll say, well, you know, and I'll just look at them and I'll say, you know what? None of my business. That shuts the door. None of my business. And sometimes, if I really feel honorary, I'll say, and you know what? It ain't none of your business either. Because that's what people do. So is it true? If it is, what business is it of yours if it's not directly affecting you? Third thing, why do we talk to people who can't fix the problem? If I have a problem with, with, with John Busquet, why am I going to you to tell you my problem with him and not him? Can you fix the problem? What's my motivation behind that? Why am I doing that? The Bible says if I got a problem with whoever, I go to that person. Why am I going to somebody and telling my problem with somebody else when a person I'm telling to has no ability to fix the problem? Now, my question comes into my mind. Do you really want to fix the problem? See? The fourth one. Has what you're saying about somebody already been taken care of by the person? Have they made it right? You know, everybody's got a history. Everybody before they saved, you always didn't do everything was right. And most of us, after we got saved, we didn't always do things was right. Everybody's got a history. We like to attack people like, like our history is perfect, but theirs is not, you see. And that just doesn't work that way. Everybody's got a history. Your personal sin is between you and God. It's nobody else's business. The Bible proper procedure is you won't get it right. You've got something in your life that you won't get right, then I'm going to pray that you get it right. If you got something in your life and you get it right, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put my arm around you and I'm going to rejoice and praise the Lord that you got it right. What else is there to do? That's the end of it. And that's exactly what you follow here. Now, the next thing he says, and these last two are really good. A good rule of a man's honesty and integrity would be to follow uh, these next two steps. This will be number five and number six. 
Never say anything about a person's private matter in life that you won't first say to them to their face. That's a great one. Never say anything to anybody about their private life to anybody else that you haven't first said to them to their face. Anybody know who Bob Ford was? Raise your hand. Anybody know who Bob Ford was? I knew, Jimmy, I knew you would. Hang on, I'm going to let you tell me here in a minute. Anybody know who Bob Ford was? I love it. I love it. Jimmy, who was Bob Ford? He was the man that shot Jesse James. How many home runs did he hit in the first inning? He's a baseball, knows every statistic. He used to win thousands of dollars going on talk shows winning. Jimmy is a mine when it comes to baseball. Anyway, he knew Bob Ford. Now, it's no big deal that you didn't know Bob Ford. But Bob Ford was the man who shot Jesse James. Do you know why? Who knows who Melvin Purvis is? We got one back here. Anybody else? I guess I'm in the wrong generation here. <laughs> but you know why nobody knows who Bob Ford is? When, and, and it was in Missouri, up where you guys live. He's buried, not Bob Ford, but Jesse James is buried up there. You know why nobody knows who Bob Ford is? You know why nobody remembers Bob Ford? Because <clears throat> Bob Ford was a coward. You know why Bob Ford was a coward? Because he shot Jesse James in the back. You know, when he laid out his story of what he did, <clears throat> he told the story that there was no way he was going to take Jesse James on face-to-face. He said, if I'd have taken Jesse James on face-to-face, I'd have been dead. Jesse was faster. He was a more better shot. He was quicker than I was, and I was no way that I was going to try to go gun-to-gun with him, face-to-face with him, because he would have killed me. So I had to get him killed because I wanted a reward. So you know what I did? I shot him in the back as a coward, and that's why nobody remembers Bob Ford because he was a coward. Now, let me make the practical application for you. Most people that have a problem with you or with me or anybody, they're cowards. You know why? Because they'll never come to you face to face. They're like Bob Ford. They're just going to shoot you in the back. That's the way they operate. That's the way he operated. And of all the famous outlaws in history, Jesse James, especially in our state, Missouri, nobody knows who Bob Ford was because he was a coward. Cowards will always shoot you in the back. Never say anything about a person's private matters in his life that they won't first say to that person's face. You know how it goes in the West. Wait till the clock hits 12. Strap on your gun. Call him out on the street. Let the whole church be there. (laughs) You did this. You're guilty of this. You're a heretic. You're this. You're that. I'm calling you out. (laughs) Never happened. No, you're just like Bob Ford. You'll just shoot him in the back. Now the sixth thing. Anything you say about anybody, you ought to be willing to sign a public document that is clear that what you said is 100% true. And if it's not, then you could go to court for slander. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. In other words, you'll be able to prove what you say. You know, Facebook, I, and I know there's a lot of good things on the computer, and, and I know there's a lot of good things for Facebook, but there's one side of Facebook that reminds me of what I see on restroom walls. I just got to be honest with you. And over the last couple of years, these idiots thought they could post anything about anybody. And I think it was last year I just read there was over 35,000 lawsuit libel cases because people are coming to find out that you are responsible for what you put on there. Now look at verse 14. Where no counsel is, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Now, this is a common truth, as most of the Proverbs are, that before a man decides a course of action, he should get all the facts, both sides, if it affects him in any way or it's any of his business. You never get the true picture of something without the whole story. People tell the story bias. 
You see it in newspapers all the time. A particular newspaper will have a particular bias or whatever way story they write, uh, they'll write it with their particular bias. And that's just the way it works. Uh, but in another context, uh, we all have choices and decisions to make, don't we? Sure we do. And this verse uh, is used 99% of God's people like this. Well, I have something I need to deal with. I have a decision I need to make. I have a choice I need to make. So here's what I'll do. I'll call out five or ten different people. I'll get everybody's opinion. I'll lay it out and get everybody's got to say. And when I'll find the one that most suits me, that's the one I'm going to take. And that will always lead to a disaster. And now i got to say this. When it says here where there's no counsel is and there's safety in a multitude of counselors, he's not talking about your therapist or your psychiatrist. He's not talking about some Christian counselor. He's not talking about some good friend who has a homemade solution for your, your problem. No. God gave you a book of 66 counselors. This is the book of life, and it has in it every issue <coughs> that you're ever going to struggle with. And the Word of God is your 66 counselors. Men who wrote these laid out every scenario and situation that man would face find himself in all through life. Each counselor will specialize throughout his book in many different issues, like Job, like Psalms, like the Song of Solomon, like the Proverbs, like the Ecclesiastes, like Romans, like First and Second Timothy, like, like, uh, like Philemon and, uh, and those books. These 66 counselors have written these books from the guideline of the three greatest counselors the world has ever seen. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They've been written under their inspiration. They form the absolute truth of life in everything you'll encounter. There's never a problem. There's never a situation. There's never a circumstance. There'll never be an issue in all that life that Dr. Grace cannot fix. We have our people ministry. Some of you came yesterday. I invited you in because we were going to do a great study on biblical format of depression. And we had a great crowd there. But now you better understand and see, uh, you know, what, uh, what it's all about. After laying the groundwork of dealing with people, cause and effect, we just started in Genesis and started working through every scenario that the counselor of that book gives us. We're up to First Kings now, I think. And we're just going through at each book as the counselor of that book lays out his, his thesis on the cause and the effect. And that's what we're following. That's what we're teaching. That's what we're trying to get you to use when you work with people. When you have an issue with a person, it's these counselors who tell you how to rightly deal with it. If you have an addiction, it's these 66 counselors that will show you how to break it. If you have a struggle in your walk with God or a struggle in a relationship or you're lonely or you have no friends, it's these counselors who get you through it all and show you how to fix it. If you have an issue with your children, it's these guys who provide the answers to your situation. If you have a problem with marriage issues, you do, it's Dr. Grace that will get you through, that will show you every scenario, and it shows you everything that you need to understand, of understanding both sides of the situation. If you have a stronghold in your life, it's these 66 counselors that will break the chains of that stronghold. But it all comes down to you. book of Proverbs is about a wise man and a foolish man. It's about a man who takes the things of God and a man who won't. You either make God's counselors your absolute authority by the principles or you'll keep getting it from your friends and, 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 and keep getting into trouble uh, more and more in most cases as you just spiral down with. And trying to mix the two will never work. It will never work. That Bible says that life is simple. It's not complicated. Everything that God has done and given man, he has made as simple as it can be. It's man who likes to take the basic simple things of God and make it complex. We saw it a couple of weeks ago, or last week I guess it was, when we looked at the study of Naaman. Naaman, the great lesson that comes out of that, you know what, Naaman, you got to do it God's way. You can't do it your way. The way you've been doing it all your life hasn't worked. Now you've got to change and you've got to do it God's way. 
Now, these are some of the most practical, everyday principles, the basic fundamental issues that will guide you through any issue in life. And every week, we just simply break it down a little bit more. We get a little more down to it. We see the very good, clear, practical applications to it. But I go back to what I said and make no apology for it. I want to build the best, strongest, elitist group of men and women that will stand on that book, that will know how to use it, that will know how to read it, that will know how to love it, and to do everything with it that God wants us. We don't have a lot left. You know, in the military, there's a lot of orders that you have to follow. And the structure and the discipline, whether it makes it or not, is based on somebody following orders. And many times in a combat situation, when you're out there all by yourself, and you find yourself in a situation where there's no air support coming, and there's nobody help coming, and you're on your own, and you are left to yourself, and you may have a squad or a platoon of, of, of 200 guys or 100 guys out there, and you're surrounded, and there's no way you're going to get out of this thing. And for a combat soldier, a combat soldier, the worst order that he ever hears, that he ever comes down the line, because he knows at that point he ain't getting out, and it ain't coming in, and you're going to have to stand and fight. And the thing that he dredged hearing is that order coming down the line. I mean, when the flares are going off and the tracers are zipping over your head and they're coming over the wire and you've got no place to go and they scream down that line from, from, from captain to sergeant to lieutenant to the corporal right down the line and everybody hears the command, hold the line. Hold the line. Nobody's going anywhere. Stand in place and fight. Hold the line. That's when all the training, that's when all the self-discipline, that's when all the aching hours and the aching muscles, that's when all of the PT, that's when everything that they put you through that gave you the hardness that you are now will get you through that moment that you hold the line. And for you and for me, we're right before the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe you can't hear it, maybe you don't want to hear it, Maybe you're so deaf to the things of God, you couldn't hear it if he put it on a loudspeaker. I hear it coming down from my commander-in-chief very clearly. This church needs to hold the line. And that's what we're going to do. You can hold the line. You can ring the bell. Doesn't matter to me. We're going to hold the line. And I'm looking for men and women anytime, anyplace, anywhere that will train themselves and be everything that God wants them to be, that in these last days before Jesus comes, we hold the line. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for our church. I thank you for the great, strong men and women that you've given me here. And for our young teenagers that are coming up, uh, for their strength and their durability. I love the fact that, Lord, that they, they, they endure a hardness that they, they, they adhere themselves to hard training and discipline and self-sacrifice. They'll give up of themselves to do for others and for you. And, Lord, they have the ability to stand in these last days and do what needs to be done. And I can't speak for any other church, wouldn't presume to. I speak only for this one, that I can tell you, Lord, that to the best of my ability, as long as I can stand and preach, we will train young men and young ladies to be above the rest. We will train them to be elite. We will build them into a team that will hold the line until Jesus comes back because that's what our job is and that's what we've been called to do. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For sake we ask it. Amen.